Rosetta. Sweet Rosetta fat. She thought she was a cleaner. But she was a frying pan. The picker. Picture the fingers, great. Okay. I mean, absolutely. And I, and I don't mean to, I mean, this is a complex conversation in a way. And, and I think we can acknowledge all sides of it, like that there's some wreckage, but at the same time, there's some things that are one that you can only capture by kind of pushing that far. And I go back to like Ada Lovelace. I mean, he left Ada Lovelace basically right when she was born and fled. And I'm sure that was part of her upbringing. She becomes a computer programmer. But I mean, this kind of uh, poetic, imaginal lifestyle that Byron led, you know, I mean, there's these kind of things that rippled from that. And I was looking at his descendants earlier. I mean, there's he's got like people that are uh, working in the modern world all through mm. the 20th century that were from that came from him, that flow from him, you know, and. Um, you know, so anyhow, yeah, I'm with you, Zenora. I mean, I think the imagination, it kind of is, a, it's, I think, a McKenna. You know, I mean, these guys like went out into the wilderness in the middle of nowhere and took the mushrooms and then kind of come back from that and integrate that. And and, you know, there's there's kind of this this razor's edge, maybe where there's some people die. Some people can return and give us things of beauty, you know, so. Well, this is the big question is um, sort of the difference between um, even even the traditions from the east let's say like from india especially where there was uh sort of a continuance and there's there's a there's a discipline involved and there are certain practices um that require uh a teacher like a dedicated teacher to to teach you and pass on this wisdom there's a lineage involved but uh in the west that all broke down and uh so it's the same thing. Like they basically those guys at Lake Geneva in what eighteen sixteen were doing a very similar thing to people what people were doing in the in the in the sixties and, and onward, you know. It's just like a no uh no tradition, no lineage, no no great wisdom or knowledge of any any practices or, or real techniques. It's just like uh um just going into it blindly, going into the the experience blindly, and see and and, and seeing what would happen. You know, it's like a, um, it's it's uh, like again, it's like um, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And uh, something McKenna would always talk about is is nature loves courage. You know, it's like a, um, so it's it's doing thing, doing things without the tether of the uh, tradition. Um, but at the same time, it's really dangerous, you know, it's like, it, obviously it'll produce casualties. It's interesting, um, that you mention. I'm just, I'm going to say this once. I'm not going to bring my day job, the astrologer day job in ever again, but 1816, 16 June, I pulled up the chart them. And this is the okay. moment, I guess, Mary Shelley had a dream that inspired everything when she was in Lake Geneva. And we have it with Saturn and Aquarius, what we were talking about before the call. Mm. So we still have that 30 year cycle where we are today. The other thing is that the lunar nodes, the eclipse points, they're an 18 year cycle. They are also in the same signs as they are in today. So two of the oh, longest moving, awesome. 
Yeah, so we're kind of resurrecting even energetically through this <laughs> kind great. of these planetary cycles. And I just wanted to say um, it reminds me of the beats because they're kind of forerunners and they're oh, setting definitely. the ground. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and they're um, pushing out, and there's casualties. Burroughs' wife, you know, there's casualties. The drugs, and you know, even Kerouac's a casualty. Uh, certainly, the 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 driver, um, God, Neil Cassidy. I mean, these are drug casualties. And but what they seed in terms of the '60s and the ideas. I even think about um, Zen here. If you're talking about unmediated, because I know that's a tradition with teachers and things, but. It's, it's very stripped down. I was talking to some people, some Zen practitioners recently, and they're like, look, no teachers. It's just, it's more like sitting and this kind of Satori, this concept of Satori. And, you know, uh, as Kerouac is driving all over the country, they're like celebrating this kind of pure Satori. I think it's also part of the Christian tradition, in a way, the Protestant tradition, where you have these groups that say, even like Pentecostals, where it's like, no, look at this thing from Paul. It's the Holy Spirit. It's alive in us, and we don't need anybody. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part of our Western heritage. You know, it's like this sort of um, individualistic exploration that you can, you have full permission to do. You know, no one's stopping you, you know. So it's interesting to just see that embodied here in some ways. Um, I'd be curious to see what what they thought about the church and and their up in terms of their upbringing even how much of that was part of their upbringing like particularly Byron I don't know anything about his biography but he seems to be kind of the central character here in a way in the films I watched where he was really pushing this left hand path stuff even more than maybe the others yeah I'd say so too. Um, there was another film that came out in '88 with Hugh Grant as Lord Byron I really. Wanted to see that one too, but I couldn't find it, which is too bad. Okay. So there's that the the that's the like the key moment is is that you know storytelling session in Lake Geneva. But uh, the other thing that I think I've heard is that that might have been the what do they call that the the year without a summer where there yeah. was a volcanic eruption and um it was like snowing and the you know lakes were frozen at a certain time yeah that's it yeah that's what they say is that this is um that summer was raining all summer because of that volcano and that, it makes you wonder like this is these are these are meat um uh, uh not emissaries but these are um these people like opening up the imagination, it's clear this elect, let's just call them the elect, I like that name. They kind of open themselves up to energies that were even beyond human, that were affecting everything around them, like in terms oh. of the rain and setting up the conditions for the moment. It's a volcano. I think oh, that's a for, important point, you know, that these are, sure. um, what's the term i'm looking for guys when you open yourself up and you become a conduit they were conduits for these larger energies emerging and i keep going back to ada lovelace i don't know why that feels important she was born before the year before this but the computer the first computer programmer is is, is like from this same milieu from the same blood of byron and the same energy that byron was exhibiting around the same time like the within the year before it just it just feels I'm kind of in awe, actually. Uh, of there's this, a um, 
there's a thing I quote. Actually, it's um, I, I put this in my book about in a, I'm talking about these uh, these knights. But uh, there's this guy Soret. He's a uh, uh, he's 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 just a, like a, a literary critic, Leon Soret, really great. But he he talks about that night, and he's talking about uh, um, Gabriel Rossetti, and Rossetti um, was influential with uh, a movement that is sort of this post um, romantic movement that happened afterwards, uh, after the uh, the first two generations of romantics. And then eventually um, leading directly into uh, Yeats. Um, so this movement is called the, the Pre-Raphaelites, right? And uh, Rossetti's son and his daughter are heavily involved in this Pre-Raphaelite movement. And, and so is uh, Yeats's father, um, John Butler Yeats. And so then there's a so there's a direct link with all of these guys. And then so Soret writes this: It's a curious coincidence that in April 1826, Rossetti married Frances Polidori, sister of Doctor John Polidori. Polidori was the physician who accompanied Byron on his travels. He was a member of the famous Swiss Evenings of 1814. I think it's actually 16 that produced Frankenstein and the Byron Polidori story Vampire the prototype for Bram Stoker's Dracula. One can hardly fail to recall that Frankenstein and Dracula are important sources for the popular literature of the occult. However, I do not attach any particular significance to the coincidence. <laughs> but, it, but it's like, a, yeah, direct continuation. Like if you, if you want to talk about a lineage that does exist in the West, it, it is this sort of creative lineage that gets sort of passed on from from artist to artist or writer to writer or, or basically subculture to subculture all the way down the generations. Um, all the so way down, ahead. man. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No. So you just have, you, so you have Godwin and Wollstonecraft and Blake and Coleridge, these guys in one generation. And then, and then you have Mary Shelley and, and, and Shelley, Percy Best Shelley and Byron next generation coming down. And then, and then these guys, Rossetti, the pre-Raphaelites, and then and then next generation, Yeats, and uh, these guys involved in the uh, um, the Irish sort of uh, literary renaissance, and then and then the modernists, right? Like you know, Joyce and and Pound, and and then well, from Lawrence, there, I think D.H. Yeah, Lawrence, Lawrence, was part Lawrence of that. in there, same generation, and then and then uh, and then the pre-Beats and Beats. Um, Henry Miller is like a bridge between the Lawrence, yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, a, um, I just, can I just say here quickly because there's a, it's the same lineage that you find in a, the occult world. So my world is the astrology world, but bridges into kind of occult practices and like um, all kinds of occultism that was including astrology. There's all of this crossover, and in the Gothic picture, they start at the beginning and they talk about Agrippa. They mention Agrippa right at the beginning, and a, and it's so it's a, it's like this is a similar overlapping world of of a let's just call it a cult i would might say esoteric practices or connection to the unseen that overlaps with what we think of as creative the creative world and these are kind of the same world in some ways i mean even like the beats were like i was saying earlier the zen um i so it's just interesting to me that there is a um this same idea that you're saying here is nor that you have these book by book writer but it's often book based you know you have agrippa mm -hmm. his book is 
is what is handed down and people then later learn. You don't even need to be initiated formally. You can just find the book and start practicing this yeah, stuff. Three, you know, or three, books, of the, three books of pop philosophy by Agrippa. But the, yeah, you it's mentioned that. in Frankenstein and I think Shelley was... Well, uh, well, all it, Shelley was the, what Go ties ahead. it together is 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 Neoplatonism, right? Like th this is where the whole uh, tradition comes from. Yeah, uh, Neoplatonism, and then and then Gnosticism, which is it's it's basically influenced by Platonism as well. You know, it's like a, it it's this whole sort of like a, um, counter tradition of the West. Even though even though Platonism and Neoplatonism plays such a huge part in the Orthodox tradition of Christianity as well, you know, but. Uh, that kind of um, hermetic, Gnostic, Neoplatonic Neo tradition, um, although it gets sort of um, suppressed by the Christian orthodoxy, even though they, uh, they, they sort of co-opted themselves, but it comes, it, it comes back up through the literary tradition. And this is something, Harold Bloom talks directly about that, that, uh, that basically the... Uh, the religion of, of, of literature is, is kind of this Neoplatonic Gnosticism, like um, including capitalism, which is connected as well. Like the Kabbalistic writings are basically a, a Neoplatonic interpretation of, of Judaism, you know, a, a, a Platonic before Neoplatonic. Um, but it's, yeah. It, yeah, it's it's exactly what you're saying, like the occult, what we call the occult tradition is just one one aspect of that, you know. It's like, a, um, and you read Agrippa, like a, um, I've got his book here. It's like, a, and he cites all the way through, like on almost every page, he's citing uh, Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophers, you know. Yeah, and his astrology is like a level. I mean, he's actually a very excellent astrologer. Um, I, and I just want to say, this is so, and Doug, I know you, were you going to come in here? Cause I, I just wanted to, No. okay, I, this is, this is so fascinating that this is where the call has gone because I've been reading, there's two books, other books I've been reading. Um, you guys just don't hate me for reading other books and not the book club book. <laughs> I, I couldn't help, I couldn't help it. I'm reading, um, this, uh, so, so PKD, the, the, the trans migration of Timothy. Oh, Archer. I read that too. Yeah, that's recently during this time. I was there was I was feeling this apocalypse. I did I went back to Area X and did those three books again, and then I read Miss Dalloway this earlier this week again, and that's kind oh, of really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love so, the book so much, but yeah, the uh, no, you're sorry. I did yeah, let me the just three stigmata of. Uh, I'm sorry, you did Timothy Archer. I did stigmata. Okay, and I, I bought the, I bought, the, I have the digital copy of the Valis trilogy, and I've read through all of them. I'm now finishing the third, which is this. But I'm I, so the other book I'm reading is by an, uh, an, this, this academic. He's he's contemporary. This guy Nicholas Campion. He's in his 70s. In the astrology world, he's known for pioneering a lot of different forms of astrology. But he basically became an academic. He created a program, a master's program in England. Um, where it's basically astrologers can go get a master's degree. It's a lot of history, and it, you know, it's kind of a way to bring astrology into the academy. Jen Zart actually is a graduate of that program, and she actually edited a book with Nicholas Campion. 
He's got a book that he wrote in 2014 called The New Age. It's basically an apologetics for the, the idea of the new age because the new age gets a bad rap. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but basically everybody <laughs> yep. hates it. You know, yep. they say the new age and theosophy is terrible. And then the roots uh, that theosophy, you know, the seeds of theosophy flourish in the new age of the 60s, 70s and 80s. But see, Campion's book is an apologetics. He traces it to Plato. And he says that the big split, the core split, and his theory is that the new age isn't new at all. And it's this whole line that you've just mentioned here, Snor. And the core difference is he, he juxtaposes Marxism and, and Plato and Platonism. And the core difference is, is that, that there's something that is like before a spirit or an energy that comes before the material. Or Marxism, which would say that the material defines everything in the inside. It's just all the material conditions and that this is kind of the core split maybe or one of the core splits that we're grappling with and everything that gets critiqued as new age being bad is this like this this kind of root concept the unseen there's an unseen you know that's my phrase of it and i think that's really what we're hitting at with like the movies i watch they're tapping into an unseen the imagination it's an unseen that you have to open to and then let it work through you in a way you become a conduit and um, I, I like the idea of a counter tradition that relies on this kind of power of the unseen that can be tapped into running counter to maybe a Marxist. Um, this is this is I'm just throwing combining words here, but like the traditional church is kind of Marxist in a way, isn't it? Everything is like this comes through the institution. The institution of the church tells you everything. You can't access it alone, you know, and. Whereas this counter tradition seems to be one where you get empowered as a conduit or as an and like this lightning metaphor from the film Gothic, he's out there saying, strike me, you know, he's naked. And he's like, strike me with the lightning. And everybody's like freaked out. And but that's like a real potent, a, a turning point scene because they come back in and then they do the ritual. Yeah. yeah. I just came up um, just flipping through uh, Agrippa's book. Um, there's an interesting thing. I, I mark off passages, but this is a, an Augustine himself in his fourth book, uh, The City of God, does testify that Porphyry, the Platonist, he's a Neoplatonist, placed three persons in God. The first he calls the father of the universe, the second, the first mind, and Macrobius, the son, Macrobius, the son, the third, the soul of the world which Virgil, according to Plato's opinion, calls a spirit, saying the spirit within maintains. Therefore, it is God, as Paul said, from whom, in whom, by whom are all things, for from the Father, as from a fountain, flows all things. But in the Son, as in a pool, all things are placed in their ideas, Platonic ideas with a capital I, and by the Holy Ghost are all things manifested and everything distributed to its proper degrees. Um, so it's like, uh, this is the key point, it's like, um, it's a counter tradition, but it's totally infused within um, Christian orthodoxy as well. Like it, there was almost a point in the Renaissance where all of these ideas came together. It almost was, it was just like a pagan Christian, complete like pagan classical Christian synthesis, you know. And it, it almost sparked off. It would have been a completely brand new integrated uh, civilization. And then you had, uh, then you had the uh, um, 
like the Reformation came and the Counter-Reformation and the Inquisition and then following that the uh, the Thirty Years' War and then following that you have the so-called Enlightenment, which is basically it it cracked down on any any uh, like you were saying before, SJ, of any any sort of um, sense of there being something outside of this material world. Like the best that they had at that time during the Enlightenment was a sense of of deism, where where God is like this divine watchmaker who just um, lets the universe go. Um, whereas whereas in the earlier viewpoint, it's like uh, there are gods everywhere. You know, there 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 are um, there's sort of this emanatory hierarchy of being that's that's existing through everything. Um, but that that got shut down after the uh, in 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 the sixteen hundreds, right? And so so our whole modern way of thinking, um, and we we think that the West has been materialistic for so long, but it's actually maybe like four hundred years or so, you know, that we that we really got that kind of mindset. So that leads me to a thought that I wanted to bring up, and so you think of. Um, people who are considered revolutionaries and they you know they're they're crafting the new paradigm you know to take into the future say like here's here's the new tool or the new whatever right the new philosophy part of that is predicated on the idea that you need to believe in the future maybe i'm wondering so like this book really coincided with a strange period where I'm, you know, like um, when Bilbo is sitting there and he can't spread his butter on his cracker, you know, it's like he just uh, is not uh, happy with life. That it just feels thin, and I've I've been feeling that way lately. I mean, uh, I me think too, I talked. Me too. me too. I talked about that. The sheltering sky hit the spot because I think they were kind of feeling that way in that book too. And, you know, that's probably why I picked up Miss Dalloway, because it was, you know, that whole culture was feeling that way after World War II. Um, no, wait, that was World War One. I. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, but uh, sh- um, I think of someone like Elon Musk, where he still believes in a future. And so he can come up with big ideas, but like the the future that he he's imagining, I just don't know that. I could believe in. So it's almost like it's hard for me to, um, you know, want to come up with the big philosophy. You know, it's like, what is that? What is the paradigm that's going to propel us into the future? It's like, I don't know about the future. Well, well, that's the thing in this book. It's like, um, yeah, like we said, it's set at the end of this century, supposedly. Right. But it's still pre-industrial and, and the descriptions of them finally traveling through like uh like britain and then france and then in in switzerland italy um all these different towns and and cities it's like it's still beautiful you know it's beautiful because they they it there has been no industrialization you know it's like um they haven't had what blake called the satanic mills (laughs) like it's not it's like uh they talk about beautiful cottages where people like even the peasants lived in like beautiful kind of shacks or like they just natural natural sort of rustic looking pastoral shacks or whatever you know it's like uh 
So is it, if that was the future, you know, it's like I, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> I wouldn't mind it, you know. But it, imagine, imagine if it was like that now. Like you were the last man, you'd be going through like a. You'd be most of your time walking along the interstate, you know. It's like <laughs> there's nothing. Well, yeah, this, nothing it'd be inspiring more like or beautiful, or, you know, like right. a, yeah. I, I mean, he, I think he's written that book a number of times. <laughs> yeah, walking a, along the interstate at the end of the world. The the road, right? Like a, like that that one. Um. um. But uh, yeah, it's it's like a, in, in a way, it's like well, I don't, I wouldn't mind being Vernie, like him and his dog and his in his boat and his books, and he just gets to <laughs> he gets to tour around and see what the whole world, you know. It's like doesn't have to worry about food because there's food left everywhere and in, in storage facilities and and things like. Uh, I mean, he's it's. Yeah, this is the question. Um, Doug, for you and like SJ as well. Um, but uh, this book, and you said this in your intro too. It's like it, and and this is the intro of of the book that I have too. It talks about this: is that Mary Shelley wrote this as if it was the failure of romanticism and the failure of the imagination and the failure of art, you know. And it's but like, was uh, it was it that failure, or did all the people that she cared about died? I like, think that's that's what it is more, you know, because I, I can't, I I don't know, I, I read this book and it's like, yeah, it talks about how the imagination, um, it, it, the imagination dies like everything else dies in the face of devastation and plague, you know, but, but it talks about science dying, it talks about uh, like obviously society dying and technology dying and, um, but, it, but in the end, it's like, uh, he uses his imagination. He calls it a wild dream. Like let let's go down through the Mediterranean, down the coast of Africa, around and in, into India. You know, it's like a, um, his his imagination ends up sustaining him at the end. You know, so it's I I don't see it as I don't see it as as what the critics seem to as it as they they seem to think that it's like uh, Mary Shelley thought it's. It's a condemnation of the imagination. Hmm. Well, this is the the Frankenstein book. So in Mary Shelley, the the film, it's it's portrayed as Mary being, and even in Gothic, there's hints of this, but that Mary was basically looking around at the licentiousness of the imagination. <laughs> We're coming up with like these kind of uh, phrases that are kind of maybe strange, but. You know, and she's like saying, this is just too much, you know, like Percy is is sleeping with my half sister. Maybe, you know, uh, Byron is trying to is sleeping with she got the half she got uh, the half sister pregnant. I forgot her name. What's, Clara, what's, Claire, Clara, Claire, yeah, Claire and yeah. Claire. And then basically it's just saying, I don't care about you, Claire. You're worthless to me. You're just a sex toy. You know, in both pictures. There's this abandonment of Claire by 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 Byron that she finds distasteful. She finds she loves Shelley and he's then kind of sleeping around. She finds it distasteful. And so it's presented that Frankenstein was a critique of the of the of that moment where she's saying this is just like you raise a monster and, you know, you I don't know Frankenstein that well, but that there's that kind of problematization about the effects of this kind of free life, free love life. 
and and that she was kind of coming from a place of grief and sadness and she lost her daughter or son yeah her her child her first child just died right before those uh those events like i think the uh the year before or something or, or less than a year but in, in the film it's it's suggested that the debt the child died because um shelly had to flee because of his problems and they were basically like young kids on the run doing drugs and the baby didn't get the nur the nourishment that it would it would have survived but for their lifestyle and that that, that killed the baby this is what the film intimates i think and the so, baby was premature too though maybe i i know i mean i that sounds that rings true to the bio that i was reading during that time but uh, like all of her kids almost died afterwards, and I don't think that's all related to like that kind of lifestyle. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's a it's, good way to frame your narrative. I mean, it's it's yeah. like I think in those days, a lot of like people had large families because they expected that people would die. Like even even in Joyce's family, like a lot of like uh, what was his second brother or something like that uh, died like a lot of people in his family which was a huge family died also um yeah and, it, yeah and it just says just says in 1815 it says like uh, the daughter daughter was born um february the second and then on march 6th mary awakes to find her baby dead and then in 1860 then then they go to uh um lake geneva in the summertime so yeah, it's it's yeah. not quite not quite a year afterwards. And in in Gothic, that movie, she's always having a, a vision, a nightmare about her her dead baby. Um. Yeah, and so I mean, this is probably sounds like Hollywood screenwriters. There's a scene in the Mary Shelley biopic where it's like they're fleeing. They have to flee in the middle of the night because of his creditors, I think. And the baby's crying, and they finally got a house where it's like getting nursed and. It's raining, and it's like she has to kind of choose the baby or to stay with Shelley and this kind of on the go life. It's a very something screenwriters might invent. Um, but, you know, I think whether the cause is the lifestyle or just the death itself is part of what was in the mix here energetically. I mean, she's facing the realities of death as an 18 year old girl, basically, right. or a young adult. I mean, these are serious themes that I think um, it's not just like people having party. And like when I was 18, I was just doing drugs. None of this. Sorry. None of this. You know, I wasn't I didn't have like a dead child or, you know, so there's I think it's worth considering that. And this is another thing where we can pivot here because there is the feminism angle. We're not women. None of us here, I don't think. But I mean, like women have have had it rough, man, especially before modern medicine, when a lot of women died in childbirth. The babies would die in childbirth. And so I think it underscores like the fact that you're if you're sleeping around, that's my phrase. But I mean, this is kind of high risk for these ladies. You know, get pregnant, you may die, you know, and by like you don't know whose baby is whose. Byron apparently fathered a child with his half sister. There's talk that maybe Byron, you know, so I think there's something about the feminism here and the more of like the underside of the kind of attack on women that Western that is kind of built in to how society has chosen to kind of function and maybe built into the 
nature of human humans and themselves when you talk about just childbirth as being a threat to the woman's life i mean all of these themes come in here and you know i don't know when we talk about the path of the imagination a lot of times it's men that we're talking about the books that these men's men have written men's ability to just go and leave plant seed and leave I think that's something here that we like, even like the gay side of the beats that we were talking about earlier. You know, there's something here about the role of women and feminine, the feminine in this whole discussion that I think is extremely important. And I don't even know, I'm just raising this high, high level discussion. Obviously, this is a woman, she's a feminist icon, you know, and that's an important part of her story. That's really why I wanted to just bring it up here. But I think it also relates to this higher level conversation we've been having about the nature of humanity, this counter movement to Neoplatonism, where do women fit in? I mean, all of this. I don't have much to say. I'd like to think about it more before I came, you know. But. Well, she, she also, um, uh, in this book, she characterizes the, uh, the plague as being female, um, which is interesting. Like, so this really destructive force. Um, but then, then the whole book is a product of the Chimaean Sibyl, apparently, right? Like, a, uh, so the prophetic side of it is, is female as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that in this book, she chooses a male narrator. Um, she also had a male narrator in Frankenstein. Right, right. So maybe, and, like, she's writing, she's writing thing, for her times, but... In, there were two versions of Frankenstein, and I, I guess I didn't realize that. There was the 1818 version of Frankenstein, and then it, maybe it's, uh, I don't know when the next one, the, the, the one that most people read is, is when she softened. So uh, apparently the, eight, the original version of Frankenstein is more stark, um, mm. and so she doesn't pull her punches versus later she softens it up a little bit and adds some things which is really fascinating because i i didn't have any sense of that history before um i'm trying to see when uh the second the the popular version of frankenstein is published and she had trouble uh, in the in the Mary Shelley biopic. She took it to publishers, and they claimed that Shelley wrote it, so that she was having trouble getting credit for the work hmm. because of some of the, I guess, let's just call it misogyny or anti-woman, you know, feel of the, of the time. Um, you know, I just saw a headline: Omicron's sister apparently has been found. If <laughs> we're talking about a female plague, but. So the Omicron sister variant is now going to be, maybe that's the one that's going to get unleashed. That's really going to be, I'm just. <laughs> yeah, Omicron, kind of is, Omicron was too weak. They had to find a better one. Yeah, I saw that. It was like, finally they got, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's when the product launch goes bad. You have to do a relaunch pretty <laughs> yeah, quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but it's just, uh, oh, Doug, you're looking for something up, right? Uh, Frank is yeah. Funny. Yeah, well, I you were more to SJ's point. Apparently, so when Mary Wollstonecraft was giving birth, there was complications with the the afterbirth that was the mm -hmm. problem. But it wasn't that you know she would have been fine had 
the male doctor they called not introduced like an infection to her. That's what killed her. Like oh. she would have passed this stuff just fine had, you know, he got his dirty man fingers involved. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably, that's probably it. a lot of, a lot of uh, death and childbirth probably happened like that from uh, infections, like from doctors. Yeah. Because that blood yeah, loss germ theory wasn't a thing quite. Well, even yet. in this, even in this book, they did, they had, didn't have an idea of how germs spread. Um, it, that wasn't just Shelley; that was just the the knowledge of the time. Um, well, blood loss too is a big one. I, uh, my friend just gave birth, and she was telling me how um, she would have died maybe you know even a hundred years ago because the baby she had a big big child, and it was just what got stuck. And it was just, they couldn't get it and that it was going on too long. And I think there's like, there's all these risks, certainly germ theory, you know, germs, uh, maybe uh, terrain theory comes in. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's a, that's a joke. <laughs> that's a, uh, another joke for our current moment, but. Um, <laughs> it's an obscure yeah, we, joke. It? <laughs> yeah. W- women have it extremely i mean i feel it just in my soul i mean like the women i've loved my grandmother i could just feel how strong they are you know oh, for sure they're way stronger than me i'm like a you know as i say i'm a pussy to use the, the, the you know but not, you know the I common mean, parlance yeah yeah the common the common parlance i mean <laughs> the, the physical pain that women have to endure even young women this is like an 18 year old girl she had just gone through a physical you know, shock to her system and then lost the child. I mean, and I just she lost, can't. She lost two or three other children afterwards as well. Like, uh, yeah. Um, but she, yeah, it should be, it's, the book should be called The Last Woman, you know, it's like, uh, it is, in, and Shelley was, Shelley was the only one of this whole group of friends that she had who was left, you know, that's, she felt like that. Uh, so Frankenstein, the popular edition that most people know she heavily revised, and it came out in October, uh, or it, it, um, 1831, which is mm. when she was later, you know, or older. So that that that's interesting. I I mean, if you wanted to do a side by side reading and see, you know, <laughs> what the difference is, like a, you can have um, that fun. I wanted to bring up uh, Byron's poem Darkness, like even to read it, it's only a couple of pages, but it's like uh, this comes out of those evenings in uh, Lake Geneva as well. You know, so, so Gothic, the movie emphasizes uh, the monster aspect of this, um, like uh, how Frankenstein comes out of it and the vampire, like Dracula comes out of it. Um, but this poem, Byron's poem Darkness, comes out of it too and it is about the end of the world and the, and the last men and it was a direct influence on on this book um so there must have been this apocalyptic uh feeling at that time too like it, especially the the uh, the year with no summer and, and 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 this idea you know so it's like uh so that's interesting so i just pulled it up and it reminded me of the point in the book where the sun does go out yeah, yeah, and, and and so there's all this, uh, yeah, there's all this uh, fear. Like this is the weird thing about this this story is it's about the plague, but it's not only about the plague. It's about uh, 
like nature goes wrong um, in in many ways. You know, it talks about this crazy weather, and it's almost like the weather systems of of the planet are going wrong even before the plague hits. You know, um, so it's it's something beyond just the plague. It's a it's a last judgment or something. Um, and there's this theme of the rainbow, right? And so, so it's like, uh, like the end of the flood in the Bible. Um, the rainbow is a promise that that God will not destroy the earth by flood again. But He didn't say about fire. He didn't say about the plague or anything, any any other thing. You know, it's like so. So it's like, uh, so this story is 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 a last judgment story of the world being destroyed by plague, but alongside with this other like environmental disasters that are going on as well it's like there's a there's a part in there i i wouldn't be able to find it now of talking about nature's nature's revenge on humans you know it's not it's not affecting the animals it's not affecting the the rest of the natural world really but it's affecting humans it's 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 killing off all the humans uh, but can I can I read this this poem? This is it's just short enough that it, and it's interesting. Yeah, love it. I'd love so to hear it. Yeah. So it says, uh, "It's darkness." So this comes out eighteen sixteen, same same year. Um, darkness. I had a dream, which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless. And the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this of this their desolation. And all hearts were chilled into a selfless prayer for night for light. And they did live by watchfires, and the thrones, the palaces of crowned kings, the huts, the habitations of all things which dwell, were burnt for beacons. Cities were consumed, and men were gathered round their blazing homes to look once more into each other's face. Happy were those who dwelt within the eye of the volcanoes and their mountain torch. A fearful hope was all the world contained. Forests were set on fire, but hour by hour they, they fell and faded, and the crackling trunks extinguished with a crash, and all was black. The brows of men by the despairing light wore an unearthly aspect, as by fits the flashes fell upon them. Some lay down and hid their eyes and wept, and some did rest, their chins upon their clenched hands, and smiled. And others hurried to and fro and fed the funeral piles with fuel, and looked up with mad disquietude on the dull sky, the pall of a past world, and then again with curses cast them down upon the dust, and gnashed their teeth and howled, the wild birds shrieked, and terrified did flutter on the ground and flap their useless wings. The wild brutes came tame and tremulous, and vipers crawled and twined themselves among the multitude, hissing but stingless. They were slain for food, and war, which for a moment was no more, did glut himself again. A meal was bought with blood, and each sate sullenly apart, gorging himself in gloom. No love was left. All earth was but one thought, and that was death, immediate and inglorious, and the pang of famine fed upon all entrails. Men died, and their bones were tombless as their flesh. The meager by the meager were devoured. Even dogs assailed their masters, all save one. 
and he was faithful to a course and kept the birds and beasts and famished men at bay till hunger clung them or the dropping dead lured their lank jaws himself sought out no food but with a piteous and perpetual moan and the quick desolate cry licking the hand which answered not with a caress he died the crowd was famished by degrees but two of an enormous city did survive and they were enemies they met beside the dying embers of an altar place where had been heaped by a mass of holy things for an unholy usage they raked up and shivering scraped with their cold skeleton hands the feeble ashes and their feeble breath blew for a little life and made a flame which was a mockery then they lifted up their eyes as it grew lighter and beheld each other's aspects saw and shrieked and died even of their mutual hideousness they died unknowing who he was upon whose brow famine had written fiend the world was void the populace and the powerful was a lump seasonless herbless treeless manless lifeless a lump of death a chaos of old of hard clay the rivers lakes and ocean all stood still and nothing stirred within their silent depths ships sailorless lay rotting on the sea and their masts fell down piecemeal as they dropped they slept on the abyss without a surge the waves were dead the tides were in their grave the moon their mistress had expired before the winds were withered in the stagnant air and the clouds perished darkness had no need of aid from them she was the universe that part's awesome about the she <laughs> yeah she was a universe wow that's yeah. that's that's heavy man i mean yeah so you can see where she's where uh, mary shelley's coming from with this one but it was obviously they were having a bad trip at that time you know this is same same time lake geneva freak out year without a summer i mean i, I that's i keep coming back to that i think there's something here that transcends human and it's 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 we're interconnected you know with everything this whole kind of entity of the vibrating life force or whatever you want to call it the toroid shape of whatever this is the simulation might be a good term for it and you know nature is not separate and we're highly sensitive to it and i think there's something here just what you were saying snore before you read this that there's something about or was it or maybe doug you were saying this is not just humans. I mean, this is a whole interconnected web of life that is that is that is part of this story. And the death symbolism in that poem, I just keep thinking about Corona. Honestly, I know. Well, this is this is the part of the discussion we haven't had yet. Right? But, <laughs> yeah, go well, on. Well, that's okay. it's funny because I thought, yeah. The, no, that, say, that was the second. point. We did a plague book, and now we're not talking about plague at all. Because <laughs> it's not a plague, you know. That's the that's the thing. You when you read this book, this is a, this is a plague. This is a real plague. But what we're going through isn't like like nothing, you know. Like it, I, I there's some similarities possibly, but uh, like like what were your imagery? My, I just say it's the imagery of this death, and like astrologically, it is this time. All right, so mm -hmm. this moment is the same. I'm so shocked to even see that, but we're in a uh, a moment where death, people dying, fear of death, um, the theme of like 
Um, you know, what ha the, the supply chain disruptions, I think that's part of year without a summer. They said food, mm -hmm. food um, production, there was food shortages as a result of the volcanic eruption, but we have the food shortages now. I mean, it's an apocalyptic time in our lives. This is the most apocalyptic time I've ever lived through, and I'm sure for you guys as well. Um, and I think that's really what I see here. I mean, you know, if you think about the, six, the 60s as being apocalyptic in a way, a Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, this is in the same pocket of time, actually. And, you know, um, I, I would just throw this, it's a huge topic, but I've been, I was listening, I was doing some research and studying the 60s the last few weeks, and this guy, Phil Oakes, the folk singer, right, right. and even Bob Dylan, and there's some of his songs about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but they're basically in the face of this kind of collective freakout and this kind of propagandized, paranoia, fear-based moment. They're singing these satirical songs celebrating the human uh, creative, creative power, you know? Mm -hmm kind of pointing out uh, that, all right, these fear mongering, we're not doing that. We're going to sing. We're going to celebrate life. And I think that that is part of what I feel with like even reading, even just poetry itself or this whole counter tradition, this creative counter tradition, this, the idea is that there's something redeem, redeemable. Even if you're the last man, there's this redeem of like the insight that she's laying down, the insight of reflection the creative power, the last man, but she's writing a writing multi-volume account, you know, that's helpful that you would even want to write, you know, it's like that there's the act in and of itself of creation as a way to face the apocalypse and process it. So I think it's a very hopeful uh, uh, idea here. And I hope just to go to your thing, Doug, about the future. I mean, you know, even that we would even meet to talk right now to me is hopeful, you know, it's like, with all the shit that's going on. And I don't even have to get the specifics of the news for like the last couple of weeks, but all the shit that's going on and we're going to meet and talk about these ideas. I mean, that's super hopeful to me and inspiring, you know? So anyhow, I'm kind of on a little soapbox here, but I just think that there is, um, anyhow, I'll just pass it on there. But yeah, the plague, real or not real, it's heavy energy and the themes are obvious, I guess was the point I was trying to make. <laughs> But so I, I'm thinking about like uh, maybe the next book we're reading, which is, you know, when you're faced with this, what do you do? You you have to say yes. You know, it's mm -hmm. like that. And so, you know, same thing. Clarissa had a party, right? Mrs. Dalloway. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, it was a mixed bag because you know she was who she was and all the while she's preparing for this party you know the guy affected by the war is about to kill himself right right yeah but um that's great you came back to that you 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 really enjoyed that book hey dalloway i hated it when we were reading it but yeah it just the way it's written so i was actually thinking about how i could see why synchromysticism and modernism really go well together because in that moment it really becomes interconnected now you know it's like um and and her dalloway book really it, it just flows from consciousness to consciousness mm -hmm. um linking the past with the future but you know like it, it's this this connected 
um, moment. Something really interesting about that. But so I, I could see why, like the early, like uh, you and and Bill and and how uh, Joyce really was, you know, just so uh, epitomizing of some of the the things that we're trying to express, you know, about um, synchronicity and stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Is that just the approach to um, like apocalypse? There's no, there's no apocalypse in in Ulysses. You know, it's like a, he's <laughs> he's just stumbling around the town <laughs> trying to get some uh, breakfast or whatever. You know, like a <laughs> and that <laughs> that. But it's but it's it's uh, it's Ulysses. It's Odysseus. He's the he's the incarnation of. Uh, of Odysseus, and 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 Plato talks about that in the in the Republic about uh, um, Odysseus coming back as as just a regular man. Um, so it's like, uh, yeah, that's that's one approach to it too. Instead of like uh, um, projecting outwards and and thinking of what will happen with the apocalypse, like a sort of a and portraying the image of of the world ending and of the last man. Um, the other the other way to deal with that is is uh, is talk about life as it exists at the moment. You know, it's like, a, and there is no apocalypse. I mean, the the apocalypse is the revealing is is right now in in our uh, in our, in our day to day encounters. You know. So what was the quip? Um, what did you do during the war? Was that the the story that we were talking about? Uh, I'm not sure what what was that. So because Ulysses came out in now 22. I'm gonna blow it. Yeah. Okay. Nineteen twenty two. Nineteen twenty two. All these things right. are happening like a hundred years apart, which right. is kind of interesting too. Uh, so Mary Shelley's writing a similar time, but a hundred years earlier. And then you have Joyce, and, and then word to us. But um, he's still writing in the aftermath of World War One, and yeah, complete devastation. And then, and then all the problems in Ireland, right? Like our Ireland is having a civil war at that time, basically. Like the, yeah. the story takes place in 1904, but uh, yeah, Joyce is writing it in 22, which is right right when the civil war is going on in Ireland. The, and that is really interesting to me too, because so Dalloway came after Ulysses, but they do something similar in that they're kind of going back to you know they uh, it it he's writing about when he's twenty years old, but he's also in his early thirties or forties or whenever it is. And so you have that perspective of the current moment you're in that's infused into the past. Yeah. Yeah, and the, yeah, Dalloway, same thing. It's like all it happens all in one day, and it's a day in right. June as well. You know, like a, um, yeah, both of those books. It's just showing that, uh, yeah, all of all of history occurs in one day, like the. Kind of the McKenna idea, like Rome, Rome falls four times or five times an hour, you know. <laughs> um, 
but uh, what's the date of, of the of the Joyce book? It's one date. Is there actually June, a date? June, yeah, it's June sixteenth, nineteen oh four. It's so funny because June sixteenth, eighteen sixteen, is the day of her dream, Mary Shelley's dream. It's June sixteenth. That that is, uh, is it? Yeah, that uh, people were um, somewhat some like astronomers pieced together based on their writings the exact moment that she had, couldn't sleep that night and had the dream that inspired. Wow, that's, Frankenstein. A, that's, a, that's amazing. What is it? So June 16th, 1816? 1816 between, between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. was the exact wow, that's, time. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. <laughs> wow. I just, so, I'm just reading it. I, I, oh, that's, yeah, there's a Guardian article about this, eh? I, I, I yeah. Just, huh. So Incredible. this is, this is, is it 1908 <laughs> when uh, the date of um, Ulysses? No, 1904, which is... Like I, I've heard you talk about 1904 before, you know, like uh, 1904, 1905, and, and I've talked about this a lot too. The beginning of the uh, of a, of a new cycle. That's all. It's 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 Crowley's. It's the same thing as yeah. Crowley, like the oh, age oh, of, uh, yeah. of Horace, right? Like a, yeah, that Iana Horace, but it goes so much. Yeah, that's this is the time in all like my, my research. My my book goes way into all this stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, 1904, and this is the time we enter the age of Aquarius. And it's not just me. There's another prominent astrologer. I've reached a conclusion based on a whole different set of analyses. Another astrologer, Stephen Forrest, you may have heard of him. He's kind of a total new age dude, but he's very famous and very well known big books. And he claims it's because if you uh, divide the time between the Buddha, the historical Buddha and historical Christ, and you set that midpoint, and then you use the sidereal division of 12 of, of the sidereal year, the great year, you know, of the 26,000 or whatever, you get um, exactly 1904 and it's electricity, the age of electricity. So it kind of comes back to lightning. So, say, I mean, say that again, like what, uh, yeah. can you, so, yeah, I'll, I'll give a, it's a quick, quick breakdown. You're you're familiar with the idea of like the great cycle of procession. It's like 25,920. And so if you divide that by 12, this is the theory of the of the kind of turning of the great age is maybe what it's called. The right. theosophists may be popularized in the 19th century. Um, the idea is that there's these large ages that are um, and each of the signs of the zodiac is assigned one of these 2000 year periods. 60, yeah. yeah. And so the, the question for everybody disagrees, when did the age of Aquarius begin? If this theory of the great age is even real, I tend to think it's real. My conclusion is that it's real, but it's not exactly like the, it's not as mathematically precise, but the general principle that we enter new ages, maybe every 2000 or so years, and mytho mythological, our narratives change, you know, how we think about the collective change, the religions change, the calendars change, I and mean, we just see this. It's an interesting theory, I, I like to go with it. But if you're gonna do the mathematically precise division, like most people do, you have to pick a starting point. What year would you start to have the exact changeover? And this guy, Stephen Forrest has chosen uh, Christ and Buddha as those key figures that would create and begin a new age. But because the historical Buddha is like 600 BC and the historical Christ is zero, he picks like 300 BC, right around the time mm -hmm. of Alexander actually. So it kind of fits as the mm -hmm. starting point. And if you just do the math, you add it and you get the beginning of the 20th century. 
as why he thinks the age of Aquarius began. My theory has a, it's a whole oh, different theory, and I'll save you guys from that. But, <laughs> I, but the I've heard it before. I think yeah. it's, it's a good one. Yeah, it's it's all. I mean, to me, it's just it's so powerful. There's so much there. But 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 the thing is, is that this early 1904 moment um, is the Saturn Jupiter cycle. Again, I go back to that. We had Saturn in Aquarius in 1904, June 16th. Saturn was in Aquarius June 16th, 1816. So the, and oh. now it's there now. So it's something oh, here. Sure. June 16th this year. I mean, we should do something because I mean, this is astrologically a match. And, you know, it's um, but but the other thing is Jupiter was in Aries during this 16 June 1904 moment. And Jupiter was in it will be in Aries this next year at on that exact date. So it's the Jupiter Saturn return of Bloomsday, I guess. June 16th, 1904. Is that what it's called? It's Bloomsday. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to have the Jupiter Saturn return of Bloomsday uh, this year on June and it, on the day Bloomsday. It's not the and exact that, degree, but it's close enough. It's it's they're in the same sign, which wow, that's just, interesting because and that's that's the hundredth uh, year, hundredth um, year anniversary of of Ulysses coming out on on February the second, right? Which is Joyce's wow. birthday. But uh, wow, that's interesting. Um, this feels important, guys. Um, I'm going to just what? say it. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's. So this moment is when it all kicks off in terms of this new eon. I, I kind of go with Crowley. It's like the same year Crowley, you know, does this book of the law. And this is the year my theory is hinged on the fact that it's when all seven traditional planets are in the signs they rule. It's a very rare every 2000 year event. It happened in 1904 or I think 1903, 1903. So we open something up here and I feel like like the elect uh, that we're discussing on this call are part of this opening. Certainly, they're part of the lineage of, the, of people that are holding this lineage. And you might say, you know, synchromistics. I mean, I think that even though Syncbook maybe isn't a household name like with the whole world, I think it's influenced people that have become important in the culture, like a Rodney Asher or, you know, the writers of that Sync movie. They probably were ripping stuff from the Syncbook. What was that movie? Um, it came out um, about Los Angeles and the, the Lost Dogs poster, and he's chasing down, you know. Oh, uh, the Silver Lake. The Silver Lake, you know. So yeah. I think it's undeniable the Sync book has had a, a massive, a, a, a pretty important effect on the culture. I'm just going to come out and say it. I think it's a reverberating effects that we can't even. I've seen it. Who, who talks about synchronicity and Sync book terms that doesn't credit it? There's some other current like th thinkers and writers that have kind of come to this ground and write about it and talk about it. Um, but, you know, anyhow, it's part of the same lineage. And, um, but I think this is important. 16 June, 2022, man. Should we plan something now? I mean, I, I don't <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, we, we're, uh, we're going to read Ulysses, try to get it by, uh, February 2nd. And then, uh, I think that'll that'll supercharge something, you know, because that that's already pointing towards June sixteenth, of course. You know, those those two dates are really linked, February second and June sixteenth. So I'll come in for that, but I want to read an excerpt that is like maybe the one that's like an important twenty pages or something that will allow me to participate. What would you suggest? 
like if I had to pick a section that's like a, I'm sure that a lot of these anthologies will, will excise a portion of it that's kind of well known. Is there something I can do then read? Because um, I'd like to jump in. I don't know. I think I can read it all though. <laughs> uh, if you want a section that that's sort of uh, related to uh, um, your interests, uh, they do talk about the stars a little bit at um, towards the end when. Uh, when Bloom and Stephen go back to Bloom's house and they're looking up at the stars and having a piss and, and then thinking about the cycles, they they do talk about directly the cycles at that time. Um, so that's chapter one episode. seventeen. Is it chapter seventeen? Um, um, that's uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's eighteen chapters. So it could be, yeah, it's, it is chapter uh, chapter seventeen right before that. Okay, um, I'm going to read chapter 17. It's 2 a.m., so I just pulled it up here. It takes place at Bloom's house at 2 a.m., right around the same time of Mary Shelley's dream. I guess yeah, this yeah. is June 17th, the next day, but still. All right, I'll read this one. I'm going to yeah, read this be, chapter. I just wanted, I wanted to... Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at this Guardian article. from. This is from uh, 2011 and talking about what you're saying frankenstein's hour of creation identified by astronomers texas texas astronomers there we go uh sj uh, have, <laughs> yes. have have used the light of the moon to highlight the hour of creation for victor frankenstein and his notorious monster and defend the memory of their teenage creator mary shelley the inspiration came in a waking dream between 2 a.m and 3 a.m on the morning of 16th June, 1816, during a stormy summer on Lake Geneva, they explain in the November issue of Sky and Telescope, Waking Dream, which is interesting, because in the movie it shows it's like, yeah, this laudanum-inspired madness, right? Um, in the preface to the third edition of Frankenstein, Shelley described a villa party, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley herself, and Byron's physician, Polidori, and it should be Claire as well, but... Uh, and their famous challenge by Byron that each of them should begin a ghost story. She also described her repeated inability to come up with an idea until a moment of inspiration during a sleepless dark night in her dark room behind closed shutters with the moonlight struggling to get through. And then she continued, I saw with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed act, acts kneeling beside the thing that he had put together I saw the hideous phantasm of a, ma of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life. It's like Lovecraft. The, the two poets soon lost interest. Polidori picked up an idea of Byron's and much later launched another game, another genre with a gothic thriller called The Vampire. He also kept a diary of his days with Byron and some enigmatic entries have prompted scholars and biographers to suggest that to enhance sales Mary Shelley might have composed yet another fiction about the chronology of literary creation. Did Byron make his famous challenge on the 16th of June? It's interesting. So maybe the challenge came. Was Mary Shelley only 18 at the time writing the next day? And, and so on. Okay. Uh, that's awesome. Wow. That, that's That's incredible that that, that that happened on the 16th. <laughs> <laughs> Bloom's day. <laughs> So Bloom, Bloom is a uh, Frankenstein. Maybe, uh, I think maybe uh, he's he's Doctor Frankenstein, and uh, Stephen is the monster. 
but it's, uh, it's obvious it's obvious that uh like a this this poem darkness right like so it's um byron's thinking way beyond a monster he, he's thinking about the end of all things and that vision must have deeply affected mary shelley because she's still got that in her mind um when she's writing this this novel which came when did it come out uh, i said it i think 1825 yeah so so almost a decade later like of course she could have been reading uh, his poem again but uh, uh it's it seems like it's it's coming out of the same thing that happened there you know it's like a mm. taproot, right? That's fed yeah. everything since, and even feeding our current moment in this conversation. I mean, and it's yeah, twenty-six. Yeah, sorry. It's super powerful. I mean, I'm just kind of floored, gentlemen, actually, that how much I think we've tapped into something. I mean, I think we're like in the active ritual right now, <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. you know, this these synchronicities are just like hitting if, uh, during this call. So, um, I mean, it's not like this hasn't happened in our course of our conversations, but feels particularly potent tonight and um you know it's kind of cool i'm really i'm really just happy about that so the synchronicity that, that we this this june 16th thing it's kind of eerie isn't it <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> creepy so. um so uh, doug you didn't say if you liked it or not this one i didn't i hated it <laughs> <laughs> um, i didn't there were moments when I I was interested, but most of the time, I I don't I wasn't invested in the people. I did not care about Adrian. It was a strange way to begin with. Um, like he was, he was fighting with Adrian. Like he resented him. Yeah, and he was then his they, rival. Yeah. Yeah, and then, but like, there was, I don't know. I just. There was this distance in the narration that irritated me. There, that was one of the things. And then it, it was just a lot. I mean, it, it was really a lot. Because you, you have to really be invested in the people so that when they started dying, you cared about them dying. And if you weren't invested, then it wasn't. You know, it was just, all right, fine, the plague started, good. Oh, okay, people are dying, good. We're getting there. <laughs> You know, we're getting there. Yeah, the the word plague um, doesn't come up until page 175. So it's like, a, yeah, it takes a long time to get into it. But I kind of yeah. liked it at the beginning. Like I, like I said before, it was like it was reminding me of Ada, you know. Um, like it would... I, I, I'm, I just... really am like after the after the club. I usually am inspired to go back and try and get what I missed, you know. Mm -hmm. So like I, I think I told you guys after Burroughs, I went back and I read his three early books, mm. uh, uh, Junkie, Queer, and the Yahe Letters. Let's see. Oh. Did yeah. I miss one? Um. Is there another early one? Uh, well, there's uh, the hippos boiled in their tanks, but that's 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 Kerouac and Burroughs. Yeah, um, no, but so I think, I, yeah, but so like, junkie, and queer, and they're they're 
quite different than, but they also really inform Naked Lunch. Um, so anyway, I could see myself going back and, and getting back into the biography just because the people are themselves, you know, that's more interesting to me. And then maybe some of the other works of some of the other individuals, but I don't know that I'd want to, I'm not compelled to get back into this world of the last man. There are some passages in this book that are great though, like the prose. Um, she's she's a, a good writer. There's no denying that, but it's also, it's a different, it's from a time, you know, there is this kind of, um, it's dated, this dated quality to her prose, I guess. You know, I, so I, it I, makes like, it a little like, more difficult, I guess. People would call it purple prose, I guess, but it's like the highest quality of, of purple prose, you know. Um, but I, I, I like it, you know, it's like, a, I like it in the sense that it's like, a, um, it's kind of rich with illusion. So she's definitely uh, conscious of being part of this uh, kind of literary tradition that we've been talking about, um, uh, which I which I like, you know. So so it's all the way through. It's it's just all these classical references and stuff like that, you know. That uh, um, and she's including that not not she's not just name dropping or anything like that. She's she's alluding to these things because uh, there's direct resonances from these myths or incidents in history and what's going on in in the novel, you know. Well, so in her book. Like she mentions, you know, like all the historical plague stories that everyone yeah. read, like she, she did the same thing for her imaginary plague, which was to go and read these different these different works by different people. So that I thought that was really fascinating. So she did, you know, mention Boccaccio and then Defoe. Defoe Journal of the Plague Year. Charles yeah. Brockton, I never heard of him. Uh, Charles Brockton Brown's Arthur Mervyn. Um, John Wilson, The City of the Plague. Seems like there's a... There's, in this introduction, it's talking about there's a, there's a bunch of last men kind of narratives that came out immediately before she put out this one. Hmm. But So how did you feel about... Um, uh, this and COVID, you know, like, a, did that? It, it didn't seem to do, do anything. Like, they didn't, there's this, I'm feeling it's, if if I'm having, like, an apocalypse, it's it's less about the COVID than more about the, the political mindset, this division that we're kind of in, yeah. where things are really divided. And then, going through the Trump moment and then getting to the other side of it and now just kind of feeling lethargic on the other side of that, not knowing. I mean, if you were to press me, I would say this is just a lull before we get back to where we were. You know, I feel like, like we've reinvigorated, you know, the people. Oh, sure. There's going to be a massive, like a, right wing or whatever backlash to this 
Because they're, the, yeah. they're the only resistance to this, you know, like the left is totally, like, there is no left, basically. They, they, uh, they, they, <laughs> there's no, there's no critique of what's going on, you know, except from these, from the right. Well, there's, let me just come in, because there is a critique from the left, but the problem is, is that the narrative has assigned that anybody who has a critique as Q. That's the sad yeah, thing about the whole Q that's, phenomenon. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of invented. I, I think it's probably a psyop, but it seems like it's like the psyop that's invented as a catch-all for any criticism of the corporate state as it marches on. But yeah, I follow yeah. a bunch of like radical left types, and there is some criticism. Their voices in the wilderness. They're not mainstream, yeah, exactly. and they're accused of being Q when they when they raise their. their yeah, me too. I mean, who who are you looking at in that regard? Like. Well, I just, I'm, would, I'm trying I'll, to find those voices. Yeah, some kind of like Twitter is good lately on Twitter. All I do is like follow someone. And then if you have it on your phone app, they'll suggest follow these 10 other people. And I just like follow. I have a, a Twitter account that's not my professional account that is just all I, I follow to get a cacophony of all kinds of voices. But I would say for more mainstream, well-known, like this guy, Max Blumenthal, right, Jimmy yeah. Dore, sure. these are kind of mainstream kind of types that have, are left clearly because they're like pro-worker and they want like social, you know, a social safety net and critic of the war machine. But they've come out pretty strong. Um, there's this writer I like in Berlin, C.J. Hopkins. Yeah, right? yeah. He, I love C.J. Hopkins. He's basically a leftist, but but he's come out strong. He calls it the new normal ideology. And that's the phrase he's using to describe he's, it. He's, he's calling the whole system global cap, right? Global yeah, cap global cap is his name for the system. And yeah. that's the name he's had for a long time. But then he says right. it's like the new normal ideology of global cap. Yeah. Um, and global capitalism. And that's right. why I consider him more left, because it's like even to critique capitalism, I feel like is a leftist trope. I don't like to do, I like to critique hierarchy or dominance hierarchy or something like this, where you have exploitation, hierarchies of exploitation is my phrase, because I feel like capitalism, we've lost the plot on that, what that even is, you know. Um, I, I don't know, it's like, a, it's still, yeah, if you want to call capitalism like corporate corporate rule, you know. Yeah, that's, that's what like, I would call it. Yeah. That's, um, uh, yeah, it's a perfect name, global capitalism. Well, some, but something like I, I see to me, you, you, when as soon as that word is entered, it it automatically bifurcates, and then it, there's disputes because you have like ANCAP types that are like, this is not capitalism, this is uh, you know, captured authoritarianism. Well, they, they will, yeah, they will go so far as to say it's like it, they will call it um, crony capitalism or corporate yeah. capitalism, and to me that's fine. You know, see if you want to call it that, uh, you call it that. I'll I'll just call it plain ordinary capitalism <laughs> yeah. i just I, I just prefer the reason why is because it's it's not tied in i i, I like marx's i would rather call it um, cl uh, the class struggle than, right. than the word capitalism because again it, it 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 to me it doesn't quite get at capitalism as 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 noun refers to something that's historical it doesn't refer to this larger issue which is humans exploiting other human beings and that's to me you can get rid of capitalism but you still have feudalism you still have slavery i mean yes yeah. i mean and that's it's, a good, it's the it's, same it's the same that's the root i guess is what i'm saying i want to get at that root which is exploitative classism and the idea that there's useless eaters and elites and this whole model so anyhow that's why i don't like the term but go ahead storm sorry i, I mean just had it, to... it, it, no i i hear what you're saying too it's like um i just think that it's like uh 
um, it works as a term, capitalism, and especially when somebody like Hopkins is talking about uh, um, global capitalism, right? Yeah, um, but he changes the be, term, and that's the genius. He's, but, he changes the noun, but go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. yeah what I'm saying is that it's, it's like a, it is the, the system that exists right now directly stems out of capitalism. It's like a, historically it is capitalism. It's corporate capitalism. It's like a, it's, it's basically an authoritarian um, or totalitarian uh, form of capitalism. And so it's like, uh, if we want to have I would a, dispute that, but yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I, I don't know. Come back I don't, and talk about that. But I don't know ahead. how it can be disputed. It's like historically, it's like there's, there's been no historic break. There's been no revolution to, to stop uh, corporate capitalist rule. There, but there yeah. has been, there has been, even legally. So we have to talk about what emerges in the 20th century as distinct from the 19th century. And there's huge distinctions to draw. Even in the law, the corporate personhood comes later. The idea of te the technologies, of pharmacological technologies, they're even like the Huxley and stuff, See, it's morphed into something that I would argue isn't just simply the division of labor in a factory, which I would, that's why I think capitalism, even as a historical label, refers to things that happen before this kind of 20th century post-capitalist authoritarian kind of model, which isn't as much, it's kind of a Foucauldian or postmodern version of something that came before, which is not capitalism first. It, we, we, you, you have to break it out of that to, to add to what it's morphed into and the other appendages of it well, to describe it appendage, accurately. Appendages and, and morphing for sure. And, and But even Marx, it's like he uh, he didn't see capitalism as a static system, you know. He's, he's talking about how it's going to morph into the, in the future as well, you know. And that's you follow Marx and it's basically morphed in the same way as he talks about, you know, it's like from, from, uh, from his, from a Marxist perspective, um, the only way that capitalism would go into another system, if would be as if there was a, a revolutionary break, you know, there would have been a, a class struggle and the, uh, the proletariat would have risen up and, and overthrown the, uh, the existing bourgeois ruling class and that that's yeah. never happened that that bourgeois that's the continuity is that bourgeois ruling class has existed from the 19th century and before until now you know there's been no break there's been a no, complete to, continuity you know so the it's the same back. it's the same system it's just been like you say it's 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 morphed you know it's changed but it's it's capitalism you know it's, it's like, not I don't, <laughs> it's it's, it's class struggle. It's class struggle. Even Marx, even Marx has a, a dialectical his, uh, a materialist model that traces it back all the way to the beginning of time. It, and, and, yeah, but he's he's talking about from every from every for, for Marx. There's there's three periods. There's primitive communism, sort of a tribal period, and then there's this the the sort of classical feudalism, uh, feudalistic system, um, which is monarchy aristocracy and then there's a revolution and then the bourgeoisie take over you know it's like the, you have the the french revolution the uh um the american revolution of course and there's there's a there's a break in that in in power in the power system and then another system takes over yeah um, so i would reject i just reject his three world model and i go with just his uh, i i'm not advocate i'm not trying to say what i'm claiming here is what marx exactly said but i think it's found in the text my point 
And it's just the notion of human exploitation as a, and there's theories you can read people that talk about how the bourgeois emergence of the bourgeois was actually not distinct from the feudalism that came before it because those same families were basically able to morph their power into the the, the catbird seed of the new system. So let's just come back here because we could debate this all. My point is just that. But it's a new system. That's a point. You know, it's a new system. It's like the. But there there hasn't been. It's not not new. It's new in name only, kind of like um, the American Constitution is new. But is it really that much different than, um, you know, when you have the same families controlling the resources? It's obviously a different productive system, feudalism and capitalism. It's like, I don't don't know any historian would would dispute that, you know, it's like. so um, I, I'm not going to dispute that either, but I will say it's a different production system when you add the 20th century, and especially as we get into the late 20th century, you're talking about information, you're talking about ideas as, as commodities and identity as a commodity. Commodities, still, still commodities. The commodity system has not... But you had commodities back in the in ancient Rome. Listen, let's come off this. We could debate this and just debate. I want to, let's try to come off here and try to find some common ground here for a second. Because <laughs> I, 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 you know, the point is the this point is, is dialectic. This. We don't need common ground. <laughs> no, the, the, the point is the point is that I think we're making. I'm going to need to find some synthesis in my bed here in about three minutes. Okay. Okay. I'm just I'm just going to say this is that those left there's a leftist critique if we bring it all the way back it's brought back into the queue it the, the bifurcate the Trumpism set up this kind of two tier model of our current moment which is either your hard right um, Nazism the so called Nazism or your hard left <laughs> the right would say they're the Nazis you know it's like right. both sides everyone's are Nazis. a Nazi which is so. <laughs> I mean, that's isn't that pretty like, yeah, I'm just sitting here realizing this. Everyone's a Nazi. What does that tell us? Everyone's a Nazi. Well, it, it, tells us, it tells us that people don't have a historical understanding of things. You know, it's, a, it's like <laughs> it's like uh, um, the Nazis and the in the in the communists. Yes, the communists turned totalitarian and the Nazis obviously were totalitarian, but there are two different totalitarian systems and the system that exists now is 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 not either you know it's like arguably it's more like fascism but it's like a it's 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 corporate capitalist totalitarianism it's not um the actual means the totalitarian means are very similar to um what stalin used and what hitler used but in terms of the the actual system it's 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 very different you know it's like to have an accurate understanding of what's going on and it's necessary to have an accurate understanding of what's going on to to actively resist it, you know. Like I, I have a friend who is like uh, same thing. Um, he will not. He doesn't want to talk about class struggle at all, you know. It's like uh, any anything that smacks of Marxism um, to him. It's like. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about it. So, so when I say like, yeah, all the most of the people on the streets um, uh, fighting actively against uh, against the uh, the COVID regime are are basically working class. You know, he doesn't want to hear of it. He is, it's like, uh, no, we can't we can't bring class into it. You know, you can't uh, we can't we can't turn it into a sort of Marxist analysis, which is. Um, I'm not a Marxist either, but it's like I, I'm not afraid of of looking at things through that lens, you know. And I, I see, I'm not saying that's the same as you. And I'm just talking about this guy, you know. It's like, um, but uh, 
Yeah, no, I would. I'm a. I mean, I'm for the poor person. I mean, I'm a populist in the sense that I'm for poor, exploited people. I mean, that's what I've always. That's defined my politics. And yeah, I would agree. I just. I think Marx can be useful in that analysis. I just posted something in the quote here. You might want to read it about theorists that talk about how we're in a post-capitalist information society and how it's different from earlier sort of wage work relationships. So you might want to just follow up on that as a sub as a sub point. There's yeah. there's it's not just my idea, but but to come back, um, yeah, man, I think we need a new unity. And I'm hoping that this COVID stuff unites people. Even on like with Doug, I'd be curious about because you're you're talking about do you feel like the emergence of like a two-tier system with the passports and stuff. I mean, does that scare you at all? As someone that I, I, I'm thinking you're probably maybe have some a little bit more mainstream, you know, and that could be just my, ju- my, my judgment there, but do you, how do you feel about the kind of passport tech dystopia stuff that's coming out of this? Because I think that's part of the apocalyptic nature of it. It's not just the plague whatever that is, whatever, to whatever extent it's actually a plague-like or not, it's this architecture that's constructed on top of it, that we're clearly entering and crossing a threshold into this new architecture. I I don't, I don't know. It's not, I don't know, it's, it's not immediate enough for me to be concerned about. I suppose. Yeah, Boise is probably going if it you know probably won't be on the vanguard of installate installing that stuff for sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, Japan isn't really either, surprisingly. But uh, at 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 this point, luckily. Um, but yeah, I'm hearing from people like a friend of mine in um, Toronto. He he's an electrician for the uh the ttc and he basically refused the vaccine and now he's he's lost his job you know the it's really well-paying job that he's lost you know it's like a um i don't know it's it that sort of thing is going to affect more and more people you know we're going to hear of it more and more you know um but yeah in his case it's like um, it's it's the failure of the the his union, you know. It's his his union should have been sticking up for all these people who are getting uh, canned, you know. Um, but uh, and and the so-called left in general, you know. It's like where is the left supporting these workers who are losing their livelihoods? You know, it's like a, um, this is a uh, like a huge problem, you know. It's like a, it's like a and, and and people like like him are going to feel um, justifiably betrayed by the union and the union movement and by the left, you know. Um, and so, where is that going to lead? You know, it's it's obvious that there's going to be a a a backlash, you know. Um, and it's going to go like you were saying, Doug. It's going to go far to the right again. You know, it's just a lull. Well, it's. I just want to throw out here the progressive era and the early part of the. 20th century, you know that I've seen these things uh, spread around Twitter. Part of their demands were like, we want an eight-hour workday, five days a week, no forced vaccination. That was in those lists, that it was like the workers wanted to have bodily autonomy and the ability to choose what medicines they take. Uh, 
as part of their labor, the labor movement, the big labor movement that happened before the first uh, the, in the early 20th century. Then there's the 1930s labor movement. And then kind of maybe we're hopefully into something different. But I mean, I think that it, what's happened, though, and this is where we get into like some of this conversation. I, I posted something about the post-capitalist, post-capitalism. It's from Wikipedia. But the idea that we've shifted to where information and science and it becomes kind of a new, and this whole thing's about automation, where we're, we've entered this kind of scientistic or science regime of scientism that Huxley talked about, that others, that the society kind of will settle into this place where these priests, this priest class of science, of scientists, uh, kind of are, are most, maybe the most important. And the left is not questioning that. Yes. They still are yes. good on everything else, right? Like I see these strikes that are happening now with Kellogg and anti-war. Now climate change is another one that maybe it, it, there's kind of some overlap here with this kind of cult of scientism. Um, but, you know, I think that this is where the, the heart of the problem of our time is what about the priests of scientism? Will they be uh, problematized and brought down or will they continue to have dominance over the minds, you know? And the right. I'm going to leave that question there. I'm going to have to call it a night for me because I have to go to bed. I'm so sorry. I could. I'm down for this conversation, <laughs> but not at night. <laughs> but so, if you guys are welcome to keep going, but I really have to just step away now. Can we keep going with the, you, you? It will still record, yeah, or it'll okay. still record, and you okay. and I will process it. Whatever's there. And so enjoy. And then uh, I'll tell the group that we're going to read Ulysses. And I, we'll have a date already because we're going to try and get it out as close to the his birthday as possible. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. It's, yeah, it, it feels like it's the next logical step from yeah. what we've been doing. So awesome. continue. Thanks so much. This was great. We'll talk again. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, that was Doug. great. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate but, you, man. Take care. Take care. I'm so insecure, I think, that I'll die before I drink. And I'm so caught up in the news of who likes me and who hates you. And I'm so tired that I might quit my job, start a new life. And they'd all be so disappointed, because who am I if not exploited? And I'm so sick of 17. Where's my fucking teenage dream? If someone tells me one more time, enjoy your youth, I'm going to cry. And I don't stick up for myself. I'm anxious and nothing can help. And I wish I'd done this before. And I wish people liked me more. All I did was try my